Today's scripture reading comes from John 21, 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Ian. Well, while I'm moving in up here, which is what it feels like I have to do to get everything ready, I'll just say that, goodness, I feel like Saul on the road to Damascus, and who are you, Lord? All right, that's, that's a New Testament joke for you. All right. Um, that it's so gratifying to see so many students leading in ministry, and I'm just so grateful. It's such a privilege to to get to watch students do that. Okay, hold on. iPad passcode under pressure. Ooh, that's something. We're getting there. Everything's good. All right. I should have known that this is what was coming first, though. Do you know the Easter greeting that we say to each other? We say, Christ is risen. risen Yes, that's right. Let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, folks, Easter changes everything. Now, if you've been here for chapel for a while, when you were here last week, you might remember that Dr. Laird preached and uh, right at the start of Holy Week, And she used this beautiful image, this way of talking about how Jesus' healing of Lazarus, raising him from the dead, snatches what seems like an apparent control of death that the ruling authorities have, snatches that away, and it, it just turns everything upside down. And then on Wednesday, Chaplain Esteban proclaimed about the risen Christ who breathes upon us new possibilities of life in the spirit. Easter changes everything. So in these last two chapters of John, chapters 20 and 21, we encounter Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, living in the power of the resurrection, and at once recognizable, but also confounding. Present, and yet a little bit elusive. 
still bearing the scars of his execution and yet living in the fullness of new life. And in today's passage from John 21, verses 15 through 19, Jesus initiates a conversation with Peter. Now, I think most of you probably remember Peter. Peter's the disciple who, across all the Gospels, hovers somewhere between teacher's pet and class clown, right? Simon Peter's final scene before Jesus' crucifixion, though, uh, was a low point. He denied Jesus. And since then, John's Gospel tells us that Peter did, I mean, he'll want you to remember, he did show up to the empty tomb along with a beloved disciple. Mary Magdalene, of course, prompted them to go. But that kind of small rebound, that blip of faithfulness doesn't erase the failure, that haunting memory of how he denied Jesus. Now, in case you need a reminder, Peter's denial is one that, quite interestingly, each of our four Gospels records. It actually takes place off the main stage. Jesus is undergoing heavy interrogation from powers that are in, in charge. Peter's just out in the courtyard. But John's version tells us, tells us the story this way. That in that lower stake setting, not only did Peter deny Jesus once, somebody comes up, hey, you aren't one of Jesus' disciples, are you? Peter, no, I'm not. But Simon Peter denied Jesus a second time. You're not one of Jesus' disciples, are you? I'm not. And a third time, to a final bystander, he denied him again. Wait, didn't I see you in the garden with him? No! No way! As John tells the story, after this third rejection of any connection with his Lord, Peter drops out of the story entirely. He's not mentioned again until Sunday morning. In the meantime, there are other faithful followers who remain. Jesus' mother, Jesus' aunt, Mary Magdalene, and the disciple that's remembered by the community as the one Jesus loved, who we presume was John, the son of Zebedee. And as John's gospel tells it, they persisted through Jesus' crucifixion. They were witnesses to that public humiliation to Rome's violent censure of Jesus as a perceived threat against the empire. But Peter missed all that. Just pops back up when the coast is a bit clearer. Okay, but Easter changes everything, right? Ever since Jesus died, surely the resulting forgiveness of sins means that all that messy baggage is erased, right? Well, if you know me, and a few of you do, you know that I am more than happy to debate theologies of atonement with you. Uh, We'll talk about doctrines of sin and of salvation, and if we want to be fancy, and you know I do, uh, we can call those hamartiology and soteriology. I mean, we have a whole department for that. Please, come talk to us. Yes, but right now, let's trace the story. I'll recap a bit from the narrative of John 21 that Ian read for us. The text says that this is the third time that the resurrected Jesus had appeared to the disciples as a group. 
and Jesus shows up to serve a post-fishing breakfast on the beach. And as we can imagine, full bellies and the cool lake air in the morning lull the others into a satisfied calm. But Simon Peter may feel more reluctant when Jesus calls him over for a little one-on-one talk. Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Graze my lambs. Then Jesus asks a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? (laughs) Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend to my sheep. And then, wait for it, a third time, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And here, time out, here's where, as the mother of a four-year-old, who is wonderful, uh, but also has the propensity toward asking repetitive questions, and this compounding condition of never listening, so it doesn't ever hear my answer. You know, I'm with Peter a little bit, like getting agitated. Like, I was just there for these three conversations. What's happening? Okay, time back in. Peter's hurt, right? This is the third time, and it's starting to feel a little bit targeted. Like, this isn't just accidental. This is hitting right at the point of his failure and of his regret. Lord, you're the one who knows everything. You yourself know that I love you. Feed my sheep. The point of this story and the point of the repetition is exactly that. It's this three-time repetition that Jesus is picking at. It's just that threefold repetition that really hurts Peter's feelings. That number three brings up some bad memories. It's a bad rhythm, deep regrets, three times the regrets. Because it's almost as if Easter didn't quite change everything. Did Jesus get raised from the dead, not only with nail-scarred hands, but also with some residual grudges against his wayward disciples? Further, if Peter, you know, Peter, the rock on whom Jesus promised to build his church, against whom the gates of Hades will not prevail, right? Peter gets dragged back into his former failures. Even after Easter, what hope do the rest of us chumps have, right? Do we ever outlive our worst moments? Now, I submit, and I think that the text bears this out, that Jesus gives Peter three chances to restate his allegiance, restate his allegiance in love, and three more chances to be commissioned to his calling to tend to the proverbial flock. Precisely, not despite the fact that there's need for restoration, but because there is that need for restoration. Look, forgive and forget, that's a handy mantra, but it seems that Jesus didn't forget. Peter sure didn't forget. 
And you know what? We don't either. We don't forget. And maybe the resurrected Jesus, who as Peter confesses, knows all things, maybe Jesus knows that there would come a time, probably many times, when Peter would lie awake at night and just feel the weight of the guilt of his past. Maybe he'd be faced with the decision that sent him into a tailspin of doubt, can't even trust himself. Maybe he'd experience his own betrayal by a friend and suspect maybe that maybe it's divine punishment for what he did. Or maybe he'd have to look death in the face under a more serious interrogation like his Lord's and wonder, can I possibly remain faithful through this ordeal? You know, my track record. Maybe Peter would wonder whether he actually had been reconciled to his Lord, whether he was really called to follow in Jesus' footsteps, whether obedience was really worth all this pain. In fact, Jesus goes on, as we heard in our text, to foretell just such a future for Peter. Not his first test of faith, but the last. The last and probably what it was a sequence of triumphs, but a lot of hardships on the road of faithfulness. And so the text says, and I'll remind you, very truly, Jesus says to him, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. Hmm. Our gospel author explains that this ominous message signified the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Huh. You know, humans have a fixation with predicting the future, with knowing what lies ahead for us. That's why there's so many things like magic eight balls, palm reading, places, horoscopes. And we Christians, who might be immune to some of those, are, are not, um, not excluded from this poll. There's a reason why so many of us have the life verse of Jeremiah 29:11, right? God has these plans for us. God's promised us a hope and a future. That's great. But um, Lord, we'd really like the itinerary, detailed, thank you, right? Boy, I remember, and it's probably because of these preview students we have here. Uh, I remember when I was a senior in high school. Well, I remember it not just because of you, but you prompted it, right? Uh, I don't know why I needed, I needed to let you know my memory wasn't going, okay? That's, that's what's happening here. There have been some warning signs, but no, no, we're good. Uh, I was a senior in high school, and here I was deciding between two, like on paper, almost identical Christian universities. Oh, but the weight of that decision was too much for me. And despite my repeated and fervent, probably nearly incessant prayers, I did not receive an answer through an audible voice. There was no writing on the wall, and yes, I literally prayed for that. I was like, I know the Bible, God, you can do this. <laughs> but nope. And I felt abandoned by God when I didn't receive this clear sign that exempted me from having to use my own discernment and brain to make what, at that time, seemed like the biggest decision I could ever be asked to make. 
what I would have given for like a fortune cookie floating down from heaven, right? Oh, crack that baby open. (laughs) In our passage though, Jesus gives Peter way more clarity about what awaited him than probably Peter actually wanted. And then, right after foretelling Simon Peter's loss of self-determination, this future forecast that's so grim of death by crucifixion, that's probably what's indicated by the stretching out of hands and being led to a place he doesn't want to go. Right after that, Jesus gives him one more chance with the command, follow me. Now Peter had heard those words from Jesus before, right? The Gospels tell us that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that's the mix of kind of command and invitation that he offers to the disciples, and Peter had jumped right in at that point. And now, restored to threefold relationship after a threefold disruption of it, and being given a glimpse of what that association with the name of Jesus might entail in the future, Peter receives the invitation again. Now, unlike when he first heard Jesus' call, he does understand a bit more fully the cost of following. Now, unlike at first, he understands and has come to grips with his own fallibility. Now, unlike when Peter first heard Jesus' call, he's encountered the world-shifting reality of the resurrection. Easter changes everything. But Jesus' resurrection doesn't remove from us the duty of making choices and to continue to respond to new aspects of God's calling as they unfold before us. So Peter, the bold, brash, brave, loudmouth among the disciples, surely this is when he jumps in with a hearty yes, right? I mean, this is post-Easter, Simon Peter. This isn't a Peter that would be you know, distracted by the wind and the waves and start to fear, right? Not when standing face to face with the Lord who has endured death, gone to hell and back, and stands in the glory of the resurrection right before him, right? So what does Peter do? Well, here's the truth. I saved a little bit of the passage for now because I wanted to read it to you, okay? Follow me, he hears. Verse 20 continues, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? Follow me. move this. What does post-Easter Simon Peter do when given a glimpse of this distinctly unpleasant future and being invited to follow? He does the most imminently relatable thing, in my opinion. He slides right into comparison mode. He points to John, another member of the inner circle, and wants to compare fates. I mean, this was before the era of social media, so you can't just scroll through John's profile and, and forecast here can't stalk his stories and see how things are going for him. So instead he asks, Lord, what about that guy? I mean, misery loves company, right? Maybe we could use the saying, the grass is always greener. I tried to coin a new phrase, but it doesn't have quite the ring of either of those. 
Comparison, like scars and memories, persists post-Easter. That's going to catch on. I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> But whatever it is, Jesus isn't having a bit of it. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Now here it's tempting to take a kind of rugged individualist interpretation. Like faith isn't about what your sister or brother is going through. It's you and Jesus, pal. Or make it into one-liner advice. Like, hey, stop jealousy scrolling. Stop glancing at your classmate's quiz score. Stop calibrating your perception of success to someone else's. All good advice. Tuck those away. But I don't think that's the point here. Because Christian life is a communal one. Life together, life lived faithfully in community is not so simple as that. So, you remember, we started this story with a breakfast among friends and their teacher. Now, what I didn't mention is that that breakfast was the bright spot after a long night of work with no payoff. John 21.3 introduces the prior episode. Simon wanted to go fishing, Several others, James, John, Nathaniel, Thomas, and two others say, hey, we're coming with you. But instead of a profitable trip, it was a hard night. Jesus' disciples had fished through the darkest hours and caught nothing. At dawn, a figure appears on the shore and advises them to try the other side of the boat. Surely they shared a collective eye roll. Like, yeah, that'll be the ticket, random dude on the beach. We need to move the nets a few feet further in the same water, and that's where all the fish are. Mm-hmm. But what did they have to lose, right? Cranky people with tired arms flung their nets on the other side of the boat, and immediately the nets start dragging with the volume of fish. They couldn't lift them. They were nearly bursting. And it was then that John, the beloved disciple, nudges Peter. It was John who told Peter what Peter had hoped would be true. It's the Lord. And Peter needed that confirmation. He might not have trusted his own vision, blurred by a sleepless night and racked with regret. But at John's prompting, Peter jumped into the water with his cloak, unable to even wait for the others to be near to Jesus. The kind of funny thing is that Jesus didn't need their fish at all. He already had loaves and fish roasting over a fire. God's kingdom is not one of scarcity, but of plenty. Peter doesn't need to compare his projected future with John's. There's more than enough hardship and joy to go around. And you know, if we trust the tradition that the earliest followers passed on to us, while John was granted plenty of time, Time to write, to preach, to lead, to form communities, to nurture faith. Peter had plenty enough endurance and faith to withstand what lie ahead of him. As the story goes, Peter was in fact crucified in the persecutions under Emperor Nero. Some even say that he refused a crucifixion that resembled Jesus's. Not because he was afraid, not because he denied him, but because he did not believe himself to be worthy to die in the same manner his Lord had. Instead, he asked to be crucified upside down, accepting both the shame of Christ's cross and extending that shame further upon himself. The good news I have for you today 
brothers and sisters, is that Easter doesn't change everything in the way that a magic wand might, or that the way we might imagine a wish from a genie or a lottery windfall would just change everything. Easter changes us. Easter carves out potential for painful restoration. Easter transforms community from competition to plentiful sharing. Easter opens up new possibilities of faithfulness that we can't imagine now. Easter doesn't remove us from this life. It brings fullness to this life in Christ. May we live into the realities of Jesus' resurrection power. My prayer for us is that we would allow Easter to change us. And so I pray in that way. God, we don't know everything that lies in store for us. But we commit and we ask for your spirit to guide us so that we might be faithful in the way of Jesus. And we thank you for those examples and the community around us that prods us forward further and further into the newness of life you have for us. Amen. Go in the power of Christ's resurrection. Thank you.